Let the name of God be praised forever. For wisdom and power belong to Him. He changes times and seasons, deposing some kings and establishing others. He gives wisdom to the wise. He imparts knowledge to those with understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and light resides with Him. Tonight, as we continue our verse-by-verse study in the book of Daniel, we continue with the revelation, with the vision that was given to Daniel of the things to come. And I hope that you come here tonight knowing and understanding completely that you are loved. That's my hope tonight. That you are loved by God, that you are loved by the people of this church. That's our hope and that's our prayer. Now tonight, we're doing something a little bit different. I know that a lot of times when we've been going through the book of Daniel, we've been, you know, drawing pictures and coloring with crayons and playing a bunch of silly games and stuff, trying to illustrate different passages from the book of Daniel. But tonight may sound a lot like a history lesson. But I've got to tell you, this passage that we're going to explore tonight in the book of Daniel, it completely blows me away. This section in the book of Daniel is not merely a list of historical events. It's actually a prophesied sequence of events that actually come to fruition. They actually happen in real human life. So I want to invite you to stand with me as we begin, as we always do, with the word of Scripture that we would be reminded of the God who deserves praise. If you're able to stand, I invite you to stand. Daniel 2, chapter 2, verses 20 through 22. Let's read this together. Let's declare this like we are praising God. Let the name of God be praised forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to Him. He changes times and seasons deposing some kings and establishing others. He gives wisdom to the wise. He imparts knowledge to those with understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and light resides with Him. We love you, God. We praise you. We ask you to change and transform our lives. Tonight, Lord, as we walk through a section in Daniel... We want to experience you. We want to encounter you in a very personal way. Even in the pages and stories of history. We see you alive, working, protecting, defending. So Lord, tonight would you come into this place. Enter into our lives. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So we begin with an individual named Alexander the Great. Maybe you've heard of Alexander the Great. He conquered the known world by age 32. Well, he died in about 323 BC, and his kingdom was split among four generals, and it became four kingdoms. The important ones for us tonight are two, notably the Ptolemaic kingdom in the south, in the area around 
Egypt and the Sinai Peninsula and Israel, and then the kingdom to the north called the Seleucid Kingdom. Throughout chapter 11, there are going to be a couple of expressions that are repeated. King of the south and king of the north. When you hear king of the south, it's referring to this southern region, the Ptolemaic kingdom, and the king who happens to be functioning, ruling at this particular time. Now, the king of the north refers to the Seleucid kingdom, and the king who happened to be in power at this particular time. So, verse 13 says, For the king of the north, that is Antiochus III, also known as Antiochus the Great, will again muster an army, one larger than before. At the end of some years, he will advance with a huge army and enormous supplies. So, about 203 BC, a man named Antiochus III, also known as Antiochus the Great, returned with a much larger army and advanced toward Egypt. Verse 14 says, In those times, many will oppose the king of the south, who happened to be the child king, Ptolemy V, Epiphanes. Those who are violent among your own people will rise up in confirmation of the vision, but they will falter. Remember, these words are coming to Daniel. This vision is coming to him. And so when you see your people, that's referring to the Jews. So evidently, some politically zealous Jews living in Israel joined Antiochus III because they thought they could gain more freedom if Antiochus III succeeded. Well, he succeeded in part, but they didn't gain any more freedom. Verse 15 says, Then the king of the north, who is Antiochus III, will advance and build siege mounds and capture a well-fortified city. The forces of the south will not prevail, not even his finest contingents. So not even the elite forces of the south, of the Ptolemaic kingdom. We're talking like the, the Navy SEALs, the Green Berets, the special forces they can't even withstand Antiochus III. They have no strength to prevail. This well-fortified city that they capture, that they overthrow, is Sidon. And I think you can see it on the map. It's on the Phoenician coast. It's this I have like a little laser pointer like Randy last week. But right here, this little, it looks really small right here, but it's actually a good-sized city. The city of Sidon, this was... A big deal. It was captured in 200 BC. It was a strategic victory for the Seleucid kingdom. So if you're looking on the map, the green guys right here, they captured that city and they're working their way down south, led by Antiochus III. So remember, all of these people are Greek. They're all Greek because Alexander the Great was Greek and his empire was split up among four generals. That became four kingdoms. So the Greeks are, or at least the, the, uh, the Seleucid Greeks are heading down south here. They capture Sidon, really important. So Antiochus III is basically rolling through the ancient Near East. Verses 16 and 17 says, The one advancing against him will do as he pleases, and no one will be able to stand before him. In other words, Antiochus is 
dominating. He will prevail in the beautiful land. What's a beautiful land? Israel, why? Yeah, milk and honey. What does that mean that it's a land flowing with milk and honey? I mean, I like milk and I like honey. I wouldn't put those two together, but... Yeah, it's a land of plenty. In the ancient world, if you had milk and if you had honey, you were doing pretty good. So it's a, it's a the beautiful land, Israel. And its annihilation will be within his power. His intention will be to come with the strength of his entire kingdom. And he will form alliances. He will give the king of the south a daughter in marriage in order to destroy the kingdom. So Antiochus is going to give a daughter to destroy a kingdom. But it will not turn out to his advantage. So stay with me. I know this is a lot of history. You're doing really good. But Antiochus III, the great, was prevailing, and he liked prevailing. But a new outside force was on the rise, called Rome. Under the threat from Rome, Antiochus III initiated peace with Egypt, with the Ptolemaic kingdom, with the king of the south, and offered his daughter Cleopatra I to Ptolemy V in marriage to cement this alliance. This was Cleopatra I, also known as Cleopatra Syra. This is the great, great, great grandmother of Cleopatra VII. Or it might actually be the great, 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 great grandmother of Cleopatra VII. There's some confusion with the family tree. The fifth and the sixth Cleopatra might actually be the same person, which is kind of weird. And it gets weirder as, as we go forward here. Maybe you've heard of her, Cleopatra, right? I think everyone has probably heard of Cleopatra, uh, the hyper-famous Egyptian queen who had babies with Julius Caesar and Mark Antony. Scandalous. But the family tree is even more scandalous. I mean, you've got brothers and sisters and uncles and nieces getting married and having babies. It's the weirdest family tree I've ever seen. And my family tree is, is pretty weird. A couple of years ago, we were going through the book of Genesis, and we were going through a genealogy, and I shared about how my family had these murderers and animal abusers and taboo marriages and just weird stuff. They were eating people on a ship that was coming over from Europe. Really strange stuff. But mine uh, is maybe similar to this. Anyways, Antiochus III wanted to make this marriage happen. He wanted to cement an alliance between the north and the south so they could withstand Rome. He hoped that his 10-year-old daughter, Cleopatra I, would remain pro-Seleucid, that she would do her father's business, and that her loyalty would give him control over Egypt and her husband the king in the south, the 16-year-old Ptolemy V. Well, this attempt failed. Cleopatra consistently sided with her 16-year-old husband against her father, even though Ptolemy V was only a boy. Because after all, Cleopatra was just a girl. Verse 18 says, Then he will turn his attention to the coastal regions and will capture many of them. But a commander will bring his shameful conduct to a halt. 
In addition, he will make him pay for his shameful conduct. Antiochus III then turned his attention to the Aegean coast. The Aegean coast is along the, the coastline of Greece, where you can see the, the arrow pointing there. He tried to conquer Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, and also parts of Greece, which was now at this time heavily influenced by Roman authority. Antiochus didn't succeed, though, because a Roman commander named Claudius Scipio resisted him effectively. Verse 19 says, He will then turn his attention to the fortresses of his own land, but he will stumble and fall, not to be found again. Antiochus III returns to Antioch, where he died a year later in 187 B.C., He had tried to reunite Alexander the Great's empire under his own authority. But he failed, largely, because he underestimated the power of the rising Roman Empire. But nevertheless, Antiochus III, the Great, was a brilliant and successful military leader. But this vision to Daniel, it predates all of this stuff. It was foretold in Daniel's vision, and it comes to pass. And this vision shows Antiochus III looking like a rat, running around different corners, trying to find the cheese, but only finding traps. Well, life is sometimes like that. You're going and you're going, and it seems like the doors of opportunity are all closed. You keep knocking, but nothing's budging. What do you do in that circumstance, in that situation? I want you to talk to the people around you at your table, and I want you to discuss a couple of questions. Be honest. How do you cope with defeat? What do you do when you stumble, and how do you get back up? Ready, go. Verse 20 continues. There will arise one after him who will send out an exactor of tribute to enhance the splendor of the kingdom. But after a few days, he will be destroyed, though not in anger or in battle. So Antiochus is gone, Antiochus III, and his elder son Seleucus IV succeeded his father. Well, Seleucus IV had an idea to tax his people, to tax them heavily, including the Jews. So he had to, you know, tax them so he could pay Rome. He was under heavy taxes from them. But his Jewish tax collector, Heliodorus, poisoned him. So good thing you guys got all your taxes done. I don't want anyone to get any ideas on what to do to the IRS But Seleucus IV, he didn't die because of mob violence like his father had. And he didn't die in battle, but he died from poison, as verse 20 predicted. But these earlier kings, they got nothing on Antiochus IV, also known as Antiochus Epiphanes. He functions as a sort of anti-Messiah or anti-Christ figure. Uh, Maybe, you know, a precursor of the Antichrist figure. Verse 21 says, Then there will arise in his place a despicable person to whom the royal honor has not been rightfully conferred. He will come on the scene in a time of prosperity and will seize the kingdom 
through deceit. Antiochus Epiphanes was the eighth king of the Seleucid dynasty. He ruled from about 175 to 164 BC. He gave himself the nickname Epiphanes, which means manifestation, because he believed himself to be the manifestation of the top god of the Greek pantheon, Zeus. Like Zeus in the flesh is kind of what his name is getting at. Well, the Jews and others had a different name for Antiochus Epiphanes. They changed his name Epiphanes to Epimenes, Antiochus the Madman. The throne belonged to another one of his brothers, but Antiochus IV seized the throne and had himself proclaimed king. Verse 22 says, Armies will be suddenly swept away in defeat before him. Both they and a covenant leader will be destroyed. So Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes, was successful in battle against the Egyptians initially, which this verse describes as armies suddenly are swept away before him. The army suddenly swept away was that of the Egyptian king Ptolemy VI. Antiochus deceived and defeated him. This was his M.O. This was his method of operation. To throw his intended victims off guard by, by offering them friendship and alliance. But then he would maneuver for an advantageous position till he could catch them by surprise. He's kind of like a spider. A spider who invites a ladybug to an all-expense-paid plush hotel room stay on her web. Only to sink her teeth into the creature unaware. Now, do you know anybody like that in your life? You know, they coax you to their side. Come, join me. For $19.99, this will change your life. And then you buy into what they're saying, and then you realize, whoa, I'm locked into something here. And all of a sudden, you start struggling because they are bending you to their will. You know anybody like that? Have you ever been that person? Raise your hand. No, I'm just kidding. You don't have to raise your hand. But there's no room for an attitude like that in the kingdom of God. You know, we don't want to be people who are trying to coax, and we're trying to bend people to our will. People are not your pawns, and that's easy to do in the church. We're like, ah, oh, we got these volunteers. Well, I'll put him in this place. I'll put her in that place. That's not okay. If you feel like that, uh, let us know because we need to fix that. So don't do that, and if that's happening, and if you're that person, let us know. But this covenant leader will also be destroyed. This might refer to the covenant or the treaty that was made between Antiochus and Ptolemy VI. Verse 23 says, After entering into an alliance with him, he will behave treacherously. He will ascend to power with only a small force. This alliance that Antiochus made with Ptolemy VI was part of a plot to advance his own power in Egypt by siding with Ptolemy VI against his rival for the throne of Egypt. 
Verse 24 says, In a time of prosperity for the most productive areas of the province, he will come and accomplish what neither his fathers nor his, their fathers accomplished. He will distribute loot, spoils, and property to his followers, and he will devise plans against fortified cities, but not for long. Antiochus, he pillaged the treasures of his provinces, not to grow rich for himself, as his predecessors had done, but he used this wealth. He used this bribery and this influence to get others to do what he wanted them to do, to cooperate with his plans. Verse 25 says, he will rouse his strength and his enthusiasm against the king of the south, who at this time was Ptolemy the sixth, with a large army. The king of the south will wage war with a large army and a very powerful army, but he will not be able to prevail because of the plans devised against him. After Antiochus had grown strong enough, he marched his army against Ptolemy the sixth in 170 BC. In his first campaign against Egypt, he was able to get all the way to the Nile Delta, where the, the Nile River shoots out into the Mediterranean Sea. You know the Nile River, it flows from the south to the north? That's pretty cool, right? I mean, you would think it would flow the opposite direction, but it actually deposits into the Mediterranean Sea. Well, they get all this way before the Egyptians even discovered that they were there. He was deceptive, pretending to be an ally, and then using his enemy for his own advantage. Verse 26 says, Those who share the king's fine food will attempt to destroy him, and his army will be swept away. Many will be killed in battle. Ptolemy got duped. Ptolemy was the king of this southern region. He got duped. Those who were around him that it should have supported him plotted to destroy him. Eventually, his army suffered defeat and many soldiers died. Verse 27 says, These two kings, Ptolemy and Antiochus, their minds filled with evil intentions will trade lies with one another at the same table. But it will not succeed, for there is still an end at the appointed time. Antiochus and Ptolemy, they sat down to eat together, and they had this banquet prepared. I don't know what they were eating, fried chicken or pizza or hot dogs, whatever we had tonight. But they were talking peace, but they were actually just looking out for their own necks. How can I benefit from this? Verse 28 and 29 says, Then the king of the north, Antiochus, will return to his own land with much property. His mind will be set against the holy covenant. He will take action and then return to his own land. In other words, he's heading back home and he makes a pit stop in Jerusalem and pillages the temple. Loots it and takes a bunch of treasure and a bunch of money. At an appointed time, he will again invade the south. So he goes home. And then he returns back to Egypt, but this latter visit will not turn out the way the former one did. So he was unable to do what he wanted to do with Egypt. Why? Verse 30a explains, the ships of Katim will come against him. What are the ships of Katim? Well, it probably refers to parts of the Mediterranean world that lay west of the Middle East. 
But the Septuagint, I know this is really technical stuff tonight, but you're, you're doing a really good job. But the, the, the Septuagint is like the, the Hebrew, uh, it's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. Here, where it says the ships of Katim in the Septuagint, it simply says the Romans. So I think this is referring to Rome, that this area that lays west of the Middle East and the Mediterranean, he was stopped by the Romans, and he was left disheartened. He decided to attack Egypt, but when he arrived with his army, the Roman consul named Populus Linnaeus met him at Alexandria and forbade him to invade Egypt. He said, withdraw or face the wrath of Rome. So Antiochus left Egypt and returned home, but fuming. He left in a state of bitter frustration. And he took it out on Israel. Verse 30b says, He will turn back and direct his indignation, his anger, against the Holy Covenant. He will return and honor those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Again, he took his frustration out on the Jews in Jerusalem who observed the Holy Covenant, who observed the Mosaic Law, who, who went to the temple, the people who did the stuff that they were supposed to do. He favored those who were abandoning it, who were leaving God, essentially. He especially liked a, a guy named Menelaus, who was his henchman slash high priest. It's kind of bad when your spiritual leader, when your high priest has been subdued and has been drawn away, seduced. Verse 31 says, His forces will rise up and profane the fortified sanctuary, stopping the daily sacrifice. In its place, they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. So Antiochus orders his general and a contingent of about 22,000 soldiers to enter into Jerusalem on a peaceful mission. Well, when they entered the city, they attacked the Jews on a Sabbath day, when the Jews were reluctant to exert themselves. In one assault on Jerusalem, 40,000 Jews were killed in three days, and 10,000 more, I should say murdered, killed. They were murdered in three days, and 10,000 more were carried into captivity, mainly women and children. They plundered the temple, burned copies of the law, and burned the city. Antiochus put some restrictions. He, he forbade the Jews from following the Mosaic law, and did away with the Jewish sacrifices, festivals, and of course, circumcision. Horrific deaths were engineered for any infant who was found to be circumcised. If a mother had a baby boy circumcised, that infant would be strangled and tied around its mother's neck. Then the mother, with her dead baby around her, her neck, was hung on a pole to die. Nice guy, right? As a culminating measure, he installed an image of Zeus his Greek god, in the temple. Then Antiochus sacrificed a pig, an unclean animal to the Jews, on the altar of burnt offerings. 
This act is referred to the abomination that causes desolation. He polluted the altar and made sacrifices to his God, to Zeus. And it made it impossible to sacrifice the one true God. I don't know what a comparison would be. I don't even want to think about what a comparison would be if someone were to do something like that in this place. But it's horrifying, horrible to consider what he did. Verse 32 says, Then with smooth words he will defile those who have rejected the covenant. Antiochus deceived many Jews with flattery and with promises, and they participated in the worship of Zeus. But the people who are loyal to their God will act valiantly. They will act bravely. This is an allusion to the Maccabean revolt, which struggled to bring about Jewish independence when thousands of Jews rebelled against Antiochus. And it eventually worked. Maybe you know uh, some Jewish people, or maybe you're Jewish, uh, and you've celebrated Hanukkah. Uh, that has to do with the Maccabees and the rebellion. The revolt. Maccabee uh, refers to the family of Mattathias, who led the result, uh, re- led the revolt. This name, uh, Maccabee, it also means hammer or eradicator, as in the terminator. Judas Maccabeus slew Antiochus's general, Apollonius, in battle. And later, he and his brothers achieved many important victories that freed the Jews. I mean, the Foss brothers have done a lot of cool stuff, especially in the San Inez Valley. I mean, we've got both Foss brothers playing up here tonight, but that doesn't even hold a candle to the Maccabees. You know Jeff Foss, right? The worship leader at Journey Church? Okay. Anyways, I guess they don't. I don't know. Verse 33. If, if the person next to you is falling asleep, give them a nice, good punch in the arm, all right? Verse 33 says, These who are wise among the people will teach the masses. However, they will fall by the sword and by the flame. So they're going to face persecution. And they will be imprisoned and plundered for some time. Persecutions, they gave rise to what's called chassidim, godly, pious, loyal ones. A a movement that was already underway in Israel. The the chassidim advocated strict adherence to the Mosaic law and the traditions of Judaism. And so this gets heightened during this time. When when people are being persecuted, they're going to want to hold tighter and faster to, to God. Even today, the strictest Orthodox Jews refer to themselves as Hasidim or Hasidic Jews. And they got the, the cool curls like I had when I had a beard, and then they had that the sweet hat. Well, the Maccabean revolt fueled this movement. It actually resulted in the spiritual survival of Israel until Jesus' time. Some of the Hasidim became the sect known as the Pharisees. The separated ones. Others became part of the Essene community who uh, may have moved out and camped by the Dead Sea and contributed to those texts we, we call the Dead Sea Scrolls. Verse 34 says, When they stumble, they will be granted some help, but many will unite with them deceitfully. So even the Maccabees had pro Antiochus members secretly 
among their ranks. Eventually, the Maccabees had to purge their own ranks and execute many of their own Jewish fellowmen. Verse 35 says, Even some of the wise will stumble, resulting in their refinement, purification, and cleansing until the the time of the end, for it is still the appointed time. Even though many godless Jews die, godly Jews died, the struggle against the Seleucids, against the Greeks, it purified the Jews. They, they clung tighter to Torah. They developed these schools of thought that helped to influence and sustain the spiritual survival of Israel. Daniel here receives assurance that this predicted persecution would one day come to an end. It would run its course. Antiochus, he retaliated with brutal force, killed tens of thousands of Israelites during the first few years that followed the Maccabean revolt and followed the desecration of the temple. But guess what? He died. He died in 163 B.C., insane in Persia. He died. He was a ruler who did some bad stuff, and he died. He was a king who had it all, but he died. But we have an everlasting king who will never die. We have a king who, who suffered and died once and for all. A servant king. We have a king who is the savior king. He doesn't grow tired and weary. And so when we are faced with persecution, when we are faced with things that are just beyond our control, when the circumstances of your life are so difficult for you to face, I need you to realize that we have an everlasting God. That even in the situations where we're facing persecution and hardship, God is not asleep. God isn't off on a coffee break, slumbering somewhere in the corner. God is alive, and he's the everlasting king. I want us to be reminded of what we read at the very beginning today, because we could get confused, especially when we watch the 10 o'clock news, when we see the hardship of our world, and, and we pray for these things, and we see people in our own lives, and our own families who are struggling. We say, God, where are you? What are you doing? Let us be reminded that this is the God who is above all. This is the God who is certainly in control. Daniel chapter 2, verses 20 through 22 says, Let the name of God be praised forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. It's his. We may think we have wisdom. We may think that we have power, but true power, true wisdom belongs to God. He changes times and seasons deposing some kings and establishing others. He gives wisdom to the wise. He imparts knowledge to those with understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and light resides with him. Would you pray with me? Father, tonight as we explore this long and brutal, confusing history, we are grateful that you see space and time, and you are above space and time. 
but yet you interact with us. You hear our prayers. You're there to lift us up when we stumble and fall. Here in this passage, God, we've seen people prevailing. We see people falling. We we see people stumbling, God. And we identify with that. Lord, I know that there are people in here tonight where we are struggling, where we may be stumbling through life, unable to to manage it. And that's okay. Because God, when we confess our powerless before you, that, that we have no power, we have no control, but you are the God who is above all, we find rest and strength in that. So God, give us the refreshment we need. Give us the strength we need to keep moving forward, to never give up. We love you with all our heart. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much.